Welcome to the world of Zootopia. Through this movie, we are introduced to several colorful characters. Are you ready this morning? We have Judy Hopps, the, the small town girl who's come to be a cop in the big city, right? And we have Nick Wilde, the fox who, he's got street smarts, he knows how to hustle, and uh, then we have Chief Bogo, and yes, yes, he is a no-nonsense chief of police in Zootopia, and he's also an African buffalo, in case you're wondering. We have Duke Weaselton, right, self-proclaimed the Duke of Bootleg, who sells pirated DVDs, and when he's really lucky, picks a lot of pockets. We have Gazelle, played by none other than Shakira. Could this movie get any better, y'all, right? And uh, Gazelle is socially conscious and concerned with the welfare of Zootopia and, and uh, sort of sings a message of peace, love, and harmony for the entire world, a.k.a. She's, she is like the Bob Marley of the Gazelle world. <laughs> then we have Mrs. Otterton, who is concerned about her husband gone missing, which we're going to find as the plot unveils itself. Mayor Lionheart, considered of the good of the commonwealth for all people. Benjamin Klauhauser, this fun-loving feline, is the dispatcher, secretary, and lover of all food you can imagine at the police department. My favorite character, not going to lie, Mr. Big. He has an Italian accent, right? He is an Arctic shrew. I didn't even know what that was until I saw this movie. And uh, he, he's the godfather of the movie, right? Which is fantastic. He's the most feared criminal in Zootopia. And then, of course, we have Dawn Bellwether, right? So Dawn is a sheep, and she's small and soft-spoken and fragile, Think again if you've seen this movie, right? And so this incredibly colorful number of characters in Zootopia, and as the plot sort of unfolds in this is awesome movie, we start to find out that there is a lot of fear of others going on. There's a lot of um, discrimination. There's a lot of stereotypes. And so you thought you went to see like a funny kids movie that's going to like make you laugh, but what you came to see is this deep analysis of our society and all this fear going on of, of some of the primates and who's a predator and who's not a predator. And all of a sudden, there's this moment in this movie where you realize, oh my gosh, this is a social critique. This is all about what we do when we fear someone who's not like us. This is about what our laws do when we discriminate, when stereotypes go awry, when culture and media manipulate all these things about each other. And you're sitting there in the movie and you're trying to hold back the tears because you, you took your son or your daughter to this movie and now you're like, oh no, it's speaking to me, right, about everything. So Zootopia, and that's what beautiful art does, doesn't it? It gives us this little window and uses color for characters, but then all of a sudden teaches us something deep about what it means to be human, what it means to live in this world. So then there's my favorite street artist, Banksy. And just in December, Banksy took a team to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this French name, Calais, France. And of course, um, if you know what's going on in our world, the jungle refugee camp is in Calais. What a terrible name, right? And you know about all the refugee crisis and what's going on. And Banksy goes there and he takes a team. You know you've made it as a street artist when you have a posse that you roll with to places in the world. And he does uh, this Banksy-esque painting of Steve Jobs. 
And you can see that's the first MacBook in Steve Jobs' hand. And then it's this, um, this bag that he's carrying. And on the sack of a bag, this, is, this says, if you, you can't see it in this photo, it says, son of a migrant from Syria. And of course, what's going on here? Banksy is blowing our mind just like Zootopia. And he's reminding us that our hero of the Apple revolution, of everything that it means to be American and entrepreneurial, Steve Jobs was actually born from a Syrian father. So you know Steve was adopted, but his biological father is from Syria. And so when we look at this incredible picture by Banksy, we're, in, we're invited to reflect on, oh yeah, we're all refugees. We're all united together in this whole crisis. And everything, every, every one of us could be there in this terrible refugee camp. And side note, Banksy's team did, didn't just make uh, cool art. They built, while they were there, 12 makeshift um, playgrounds for kids, as well as 12 permanent structures. So artists doing what's good for the world, yay. And um, so what I want to say today as we, start this, um, as we start this series called Theographies Together is this is what the Gospels do. Okay, and oftentimes what blows your mind is we, we haven't thought of it this way. The Gospels are social criticism. The Gospels are Zootopia. The Gospels are Banksy. And um, what is beautiful about this is they're theographies. They're these artistic stories that get us to think about our society, our culture, our lives, and God. So when we come to look at these ancient Gospels, four of them written over 2,000 years ago, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're giving us this beautiful reflection on the world and what God's work is within the world. And so... Um, these Gospels, they were written, I love technology. Every week I'm singing this song. Yeah, here we go. We're good. We're good. N.T. Wright has this incredibly beautiful quote. He says, the sources we have for Jesus' public career, the four Gospels in the New Testament, are dense, complex, and multi-layered. They are works of art of a sort in their own right, but it is quite impossible to explain their very existence, let alone their detailed content, unless Jesus was himself not only a figure of real solid history, but also pretty much the sort of person they make him out to be. So N.T. Wright imagines us to look at these Gospels as pieces of art that are rooted in history. And I would say to you that every piece of art is rooted in history. So really what he is getting us to, say, to think about here is that um, a gospel or a movie, they're all a work of art created in history, in culture. And so this is very, very phenomenally helpful for us. And what we don't often know is that the gospels, as the New Testament comes together and all the documents, as Paul, the apostle, goes out into the world, the gospels come the last, the latest. But we often think of, oh, tell me the stories of Jesus. They come first, right? Well, actually, the Gospels were select and shaped from material that was around for 50, 60, even 80 years. And so what would it be like as a community if we walked through every Gospel and just thought about the different artistic themes they give to us? And this is what we're calling theography, these writings about God. So we'll look at Mark and Mark's unique emphasis and sort of the way he paints the world. We'll look at Matthew, then we'll look at Luke, and lastly we'll look at John. And it's enough to note their difference just by looking at the first line of every one of the Gospels. So look at this. Mark, it's, Mark is our earliest Gospel. It's written in 70 AD or right around there. And this is how it begins. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God straightforward. It's the shortest gospel. It's written in the most simple, basic Greek. 
And then you have Matthew, written about 80 to 90 A.D., and this is how Matthew begins. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Very different, right, than Mark's account. It's as if the tune, the song that Mark wants to tell us is different than the song that Matthew wants to tell us. And there's, there's some things that are similar to them, but it's often beautiful to look at their differences, look at the diversity that they teach us about. So then we have Luke. Look at Luke, the best writer in the ancient world. This, is, this Greek here is, is, is beautifully elegant written Greek. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. This, I mean, no joke, right? Luke was like working hard here. Um, Just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Uh, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. If you had a history or a literature class where you had to read ancient literature, very of the style of ancient literature, long, flowing, and can we say run on sentences, y'all, right? <laughs> but Luke gives us some of the most beautiful stories that are written in the whole Bible, and we're going to get to that. And then lastly, we have the Gospel of John written between 90 and 100 And this one is simple. It has this Greek philosophy going on. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This beautiful poetry to start the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of Matthew, how is it like the Gospel of Mark? Not Matthew, Matthew in weeks to come. Getting ahead of myself. And uh, Mark, how is it like Zootopia? How is it like Banksy? And how is it different from the other Gospels? There are three just unbelievably, they're strange. I'm going to be honest. The Bible is strange. Are you with me? There are tons of strange stories in there. And the Gospel of Mark tells this just incredibly strange story that I want to walk you through because it's core to Mark's vision of Christian faith. And it comes from Mark 5, 1 through 20. So stay with me. Here we go. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately... A man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Do you see how hard Mark worked to bring that story to us? So there is this this wild man who's alive in the cemeteries, right? in this, this place called the Gerasenes. And, and so we think, what is going on? The story continues. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself. He's, he's almost not human anymore. He's been completely dehumanized. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The story continues. Then, he, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for me are many. And then as, a, as an ancient reader, you're going, what? what? What is this story about? What's going on? Legion is a battalion in the Roman army. So all of a sudden you get this like incredibly beautiful cue to read beneath the surface of things. Just like Zootopia, right? Something is going on here that's not just these wonderful characters. Legion is this name for a military uh, army in the Roman army. 2,000 men would make a legion. 
Then the story goes on. He begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there were on the hillside a great herd of swine was feeding. Pigs. Do we know about Jews and pigs? Jews don't eat pig, okay? This is a part of their culture and their custom. And so this evil spirit says, this evil spirit who is now associated with the Roman army says, send me into the pigs. So wink, wink. Rome's been messing with these early Christians for quite some time in the history. And so it's this play on words of what Rome has done to this man. Rome has dehumanized him. Rome has left him shackled. And then it goes on and it gets really fun. Now they're on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, send us to the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. All 2,000 pigs, head overneath the bank, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and were drowned in the sea. Terrible, strange story, right? And so many of us, because we were kind of taught to like be really polite with the Bible, we were like, oh, that's holy, Instead of like, no, that's hilarious. That's a funny story, right? Like pigs, 2,000 of them went. I had one man come up to me one time. He's like, that, he was putting it together in his mind. He said, that would like decimate a farmer uh, who is, I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's why the story doesn't make sense if it's literal, right? The story is this beautiful analogy of this, these Roman legions. And Rome was the empire of the day. Rome was the people who were increasing their taxes upon these small cities to build their big cathedrals. And so this is the people. This is talking back to what is Jesus like in the midst of this power of Rome. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there. Oh, and this, this happens. This is beautiful then. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood because you'd ask Jesus to leave too if this was going on, right? And, but the man, he goes from this wild man to this man who's sitting and clothed and in his right mind. This is a story of transformation, a story of one man's journey of being dehumanized and racked to a story of being fully human again. This is a story of healing. The man begged that he might be with him, but Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. So this story is teaching us that Oftentimes in our world, in our culture, the systems and structures that we set up, they're not just. They don't do everything that's right. Oftentimes in times of empire, our rules that we thought were right do great harm to people. And so this is reflecting on what Jesus brings and what he does to the world. He is basically, this is this saying that Jesus is the one who comes in the midst of systems that are all messed up and brings healing. When we feel like we are shackled, in our humanity and in, with everything that's going on, Jesus brings that healing freedom. Jesus is this countercultural, subversive healer, and Jesus brings to us the power to heal. So then there's two more incredibly beautiful stories, and we don't have time to go through them all, but I want to summarize them very briefly and have you look them up. But there's a story in chapter 8 where a man who's born blind 
comes to Jesus, and Jesus heals him one time. And again, it's hilarious. And then he says, I see like trees out there. And and Jesus is like, well, come back here. And you're like, what? Did Jesus not do it right the first time, right? And Jesus puts mud on his eyes and heals him again. And you're like, the Bible is strange. What's going on here, right? And what's going on is that this other deeper look. So just like the Gerasene demoniac, what the systems and structure had done, this man the appearance of things, the, the things that we bank our life on sometimes aren't always as secure as we think, right? Our sight and our appearances can fail us. And so Jesus reminds us that he is the one who heals our sight. He is the one who teaches us what is true and right about the world. Underneath all of what this world has to offer, all the shiny things of the world, is this way of Jesus, this way of service and compassion and forgiveness and love. And so the the heart of Mark, again, is telling us there, Jesus gives us the power to see what is true, what is real, what is right, just like Banksy does with that picture of Steve Jobs. And then the last story, just incredibly mind-blowing story. The resurrection, Jesus, the crucifixion happens. It's all terrible, sad, sad, sad. And then the women go to the tomb early one morning. This is in all four Gospels, but then there's this fascinating turn, chapter 16, 1 through 8, and right at the very end, um, the, at chapter 8, the women go to the tomb. The tomb is empty. They're freaked out because an angel comes out and says, do not be afraid. And you'd be freaked out too if an angel said, do not be afraid. And then the, the whole narrative says, and the women were seized with fear. And it ends right there. That's the end of the story. Talk about a way not to sell a bestseller, right? It, the story is over. And what happens 100 years later is some scribe is like, terrible ending and literally writes in true story um, this is what happens in Christianity so we have all these accounts of how the scribes were like that can't end that way right but think about that ending what what Mark was trying to do Mark said it ends his whole gospel and they were seized with fear then there comes these questions well how did the story ever get out well how did anyone ever know that Jesus rose from the grave because these women with the power of Jesus overcame their fears and shared it with the entire Roman world. Now that's a story, right? And so the Gospel of Mark, incredibly beautiful ancient story, 16 chapters, is telling us something very powerful about its vision of Christian faith, that this is a God who is for the underdogs, that this is a God who is a vulnerable God, who has the power to break us free of the shackles that our society puts on us, that has the power to give us sights to see beyond what's false and what's real, and then has the power to help us to overcome all fears. So I want to just invite you this morning just to sit where you're sitting and just think deeply about this God who comes to give us a power that is not within us. And sometimes it feels like this power is not present. Sometimes we just feel helpless. And then I just want you to reflect on those places where you feel shackled and those places where you you just need deeper insight, more wisdom. And in those places where you feel fear and ask God to be present to you in those moments. Ask this great God of love to be near to you. Amen.